Bert Cohen here, and together we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The voice of Lyndon Baines Johnson, better than 50 years ago. And a half century is a good vantage point to look back, to check in, see what's changed and what hasn't changed in 50 years. 50 years ago, in late summer, the Chicago police rioted against anti-war demonstrators at the Democratic National Convention. The Vietnam War was raging. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Rebellion gripped working-class communities throughout America. Robert Kennedy, who many thought would be the Democratic candidate, had been assassinated in June. And cities throughout the U.S. were in turmoil. Richard Daley was mayor of Chicago and declared war on the black community, anti-war activists, and the hippies he hated. TV images of the ensuing riots around the Democratic Convention, particularly the night of August 29th, with scenes of mayhem as Chicago police violently attacked the demonstrators and reporters, gripped this nation and the world's attention. At pretty much the same time, the Soviet Union had invaded Prague, Czechoslovakia. Bill Ayers is now an elementary education theorist and a leader in the counterculture movement and was a uh, leader of the opposition to U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. He is known for his 1960s radical activism and his current work in education reform, curriculum, and instruction. And in 1969, Bill Ayers co-founded the Weather Underground. He said... Quote, we wanted to show the world that the American people were against this genocidal, monstrous invasion and war. But we also wanted to demonstrate to the world that the nature of the system, the nature of the ruling class, the nature of the political class. And so we intended to provoke the police and to provoke the convention. And we did. And they showed themselves for what they are, which is violent, dangerous, and willing to assault anybody to hold on to their power. End of quote from Bill Ayers. So many observers came away from watching it on TV thinking, this is the demonstrators' fault. They attacked the police. They're the ones who started this. Well, in fairness, permits were sought by the demonstrators, but withheld. So everyone who came to Chicago was breaking the law. Fifty years later, there's still a lot of argument about what 1968 meant post the Democratic Convention. How pivotal was it? In what ways may it have foreshadowed 
where we are today, 50 years later. People back then recognized America was more divided than at any time since the Civil War. And one certainly hears that in 2018, and columnist Jules Whitcover, who wrote a book on the year 1968, said, 1968 became the pivotal year something vital died. The post-World War II dream of an America that at last would face up to its most basic problems at home and abroad with wisdom, honesty, and compassion. On the other hand, as a young James Galbraith observed that year, the Democratic Party lost its working class base and divided and was sort of saying that they became the party of, as Galbraith put it, minorities and urban liberals. And as history shows, much of the working class did go over to the other side. Another of the questions we face for 2018 is, how can we Democrats get them back? We alienated them tremendously with the shift in course of the Democratic Party in the 1990s by going for the Clintons. Those days are also over. Shall we once again try going down some alleged middle of the road or be bolder? There's the street and there's the convention of 1968. Though the Democratic convention can be seen correctly as a convergence, a place where the anger on the streets against racism and the war collided with a political party which could have done something to address these powerful concerns ripping the country apart. But it chose not to. So many aspects, so much to learn that still has not been learned to our profound detriment. In this hour, we'll discuss the ingredients that made up the historic summer of 1968 and how any lessons might help us today, might be applicable for today and for the future. The streets. My first anti-war demonstration was in 1965 in Boston. I was 14. About a hundred of us uh, marched up Commonwealth Avenue toward the Arlington Street Church, where the uh, it was known as a, as a peace place, sort of a uh, a sanctuary, if you will. Uh, along the way on Comav, frat boys hung out white sheets with a grotesquely elongated middle finger drawn on it. That was directed to us. We were in a small minority at the time, but the war kept going and getting bigger and bigger. And so did our protests. Meanwhile, America's varied black communities were fighting back against racism, especially by escalating police violence. Martin Luther King had his integrationist methods, while people like Malcolm X favored more militant tactics. There was that divide. And there were the Black Panthers who armed themselves in the face of relentless police violence. This, of course, was decades before cell phones, and so there was general impunity for the killers. Today's Black Lives Matter certainly has its roots in those movements of 1968. At the Chicago Democratic Convention, many black delegates sought to uh, bring their ideals and struggles into the mainstream electoral politics by nominating Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, co-founder Julian Bond to be vice president with Senator Hubert Humphrey. Uh, it was a, a long fight and identified uh, Bond in the mind of student advocates, uh, 
civil rights activists and anti-war campaigners nationwide as a Democrat who was willing to fight party elders, does that sound familiar, and even President Lyndon Johnson on matters of principle. Julian Bond's statue rose in 1968 when he helped to lead a challenge to the seating of the Georgia delegation to the Democratic National Convention, which was controlled by segregationist Governor Lester Maddox and his allies. Eventually, Julian Bond and the loyal National Democrats, as they called themselves, who challenged the segregationists, were allowed to take seats on the convention floor. In one of the critical turning points of the convention, and the long fight to open up the Democratic Party. Now, super fast forward to 2018, Andrew Gillum stuns the same party establishment in Florida by beating the more centrist alleged frontrunners and becoming the state of Florida's first African-American nominee for governor. He, of course, is from the Bernie Sanders faction of the party, which, come to think of it, also has its genesis in the events of the 68 struggle for the identity of the Democratic Party. And even more recently, on September 4, 2018, the 20-year incumbent congressman from Massachusetts was upended by another more progressive black candidate, Ayanna Presley. And again, she is aligned with the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, kind of the FDR New Deal wing of the party. Uh, and this map we seem to be following was laid out for us in 1968. And here's a little slice of some uh, thoughts about that. Aretha.
in the face of a racist police war against black leaders, there she was, Aretha Franklin, demanding respect. And, you know, that's still going on. Black Lives Matter, you know. Here we are 50 years later. And, of course, we know who won the presidency in 1968. With a perspective of 50 years, we can analyze why Nixon won and why Democrat Hubert Humphrey lost by a hair, just a hair. One might argue that had Humphrey broken with Johnson on the war a month earlier, the positive reaction might have gathered enough momentum for Humphrey to win. But the vice president was, as the saying goes, truly between a rock and a hard place. There were the party bosses who liked the power. Sound familiar? And there was Humphrey's, that was Humphrey's boss, the president, Lyndon Johnson. Talk about rocking a hard place. And by the summer of 68, it was indeed LBJ's war. Clearly, without question, could he, should he, have bucked the establishment? Should Hubert Humphrey have early and aggressively come out for ending the war? Of course. For one thing, if he had, he probably would have won. Of course, one never knows. But many of the people who voted for Nixon did so because they thought he had a plan to end the Vietnam War. That's what he said. Humphrey did not say he had a plan to end the war. (laughs) And as we have learned, sadly, and are still just learning, as Rick Perlstein wrote, one of the reasons reactionaries often prevail over liberals and lefties is that they are so much more willing to lie. (laughs) We know that. 50 years ago and now, Nixon, of course, escalated the war dramatically. And we now know that Nixon committed treason. Yes, treason. As a mere citizen at the time, it was illegal. It was treasonous what he did in going to Vietnam through Henry Kissinger, conspiring with the president of South Vietnam, convincing him to back out of a peace deal to wait for a better deal under a President Nixon. This happened in 1968. So how many more Americans and Vietnamese died and lost limbs thanks to Nixon's self-serving treason? If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. We are talking about 50 years ago, late summer 1968. It certainly seems to have been a crossroads in a lot of ways.
That was Cream live in concert from uh, this time 50 years ago, late summer, recorded in Oakland, California. Cream, Ginger Baker, Eric Clapton, and of course the great bassist Jack Bruce. We're talking about the year 1968 in politics, the Democratic Convention, which was at the end of the summer 50 years ago. Now, of course, it was uh, deemed officially a police riot outside the Democratic Convention. And it also very much elect, uh, impacted the election of 1968. Before the August Convention, there was naturally a split within the anti-war movement. As my old friend Abby Hoffman used to say, the relationship between the right and the left is perfect. The left is masochistic, the right is sadistic. I think that's still true. Uh, I guess that would be a truism. Uh, anyway, so traditional Democratic Party folks would have nothing to do with the messy street protests, the long-haired kids. But groups like Abby Huffman's Youth International Party, also known as the Yippies, knew that creatively grabbing media attention could build a movement without relying on money of which they had none. The Yippies at Chicago uh, were calling for a celebration of life on the streets to counter the death that was happening in Vietnam and on the streets of America. The Yippies hoped for hundreds of thousands on the streets of Chicago. About 10,000 actually showed up, and they nominated a pig for president in keeping with street theater tradition so that a picture would communicate more than a thousand words. And here is a, a view of Abby Hoffman, what it was going to be about at the time, 50 years ago. I think if people stay in the park, you know, and play the role of the good niggas, uh, they'll be okay. They'll be, they'll be treated with respect by the police. In fact, they'll be held up as the models of the ideal protesters. Those people that... Uh, those yippies that march on the amphitheater or go downtown or sit in restaurants or demand their rights, uh, they'll be risking their lives. That's right. These cops here are tough. They'd, they'd kill you with a smile. Shoot to kill daily, you know. And it's difficult. I mean, some people want to go this way, some people want to go this way, and they say that those people are interfering with their thing, but somehow it works out. I mean, everybody is allowed to do their thing. If some people storm the amphitheater, they storm the amphitheater. Some people want to uh, swim naked in the lake, they swim naked in the lake. Other people want to smoke dope. Other people want to go and tell the cops what we're doing. That's good. The cops want to come down and beat our heads. That's it. I mean, it's all conceived as a total theater with everyone becoming an actor. The Democrats, Mr. Uh, Humphrey, whatever his name is, <laughs> The other candidates, I don't even know their names. <laughs> uh, it all came true. Theater. Absolutely theater. The media is so much theater. Fast forward 50 years, the media loved uh, Donald Trump because he was so entertaining. Abby Hoffman knew the theater had to be entertaining, uh, and, and the media would pay attention to it. Cost him nothing. Now, eventually, the police violence certainly happened. And many bloodied heads showed up on national TV. 
Perhaps you remember the crowds chanting, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. Well, oddly enough, the Republican nominee, Richard Nixon, used it all to his profound benefit. How did that happen? Well, middle America was not only scared by the armed Black Panthers, but also by white hippies they did not understand, dressing so strangely, uh, shaking things up on purpose, being so unconventional. They didn't understand that. What middle America saw on their television tubes frightened them. Anarchy, blood on the streets, odd-looking white people, angry black people. Most viewers, frankly, sided with the police. Nixon's promise of law and order clearly had wide appeal after Chicago. Now, fast forward again to 2018. We have something today called Antifa, which you've probably heard of. Anti-fascist, fighting the fascist. Sounds very good, but when they cause violence when they physically attack people. Yeah, for some of them, it feels good to punch the leaders of the white supremacist, white nationalist, fascist movement. But what does that do? Like 50 years ago, it helps the other side. Then the pro-fascists, the white nationalists, the, the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world, they can point to those troublemakers, those nasty Antifa, and it helps them with their agenda. So it may have felt good at the time, but it didn't really help out so well. So poor Hubert Humphrey, what could he do after the messy, messy, bloody convention? He was truly boxed in by the war. He stuck with his president and lost. And we can learn today from sticking with the establishment, I think, The fact that he came so close, Nixon won with 43.4% of the vote to Humphrey's 42.7%. So that's 43.4 to 42.7. That's pretty darn close. Now, overtly racist uh, George C. Wallace captured 13.5%. Well, Nixon understood that, as does Donald Trump today. The the racist white uh, working people... They do make a difference, and uh, the sewer lid was kept on for a long time, but here in 2018, it's off. And it was pretty much off in 68 as well. There was overt racism quite a bit uh, then. But the closeness of the race showed the still powerful potential of the Democratic Party. Perhaps I may have been a small part of the problem. Perhaps. Today, there's a great and well-justified anger at the assault on American law and principle and tradition by a president, and yet there are calls for civility. I bring this up because 50 years ago, after he'd won the nomination, the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, campaigned across the USA. And when he came to Boston, where I was living, the candidate spoke on the flat roof of the entrance to Jordan Marsh, at what is now Downtown Crossing. Of course, that roof is now long gone. When he tried to speak, the huge crowd, and I mean virtually everybody, yelled, Chicago, Chicago. And I wonder if anyone heard a word he said. 
I actually don't think so. Had he won, possibly the war would have ended sooner. Instead of seeking to balance the party ticket by selecting a running mate who was identified with the anti-war movement, Humphrey selected Edmund Muskie, an ideologically cautious senator from Maine. And I think, you know, not letting Humphrey speak by, uh, once again, I was young at the time, so I can excuse that a little bit, but it brings up the old wisdom, never make the good an enemy of the perfect. Humphrey was far from perfect, but to make him the enemy, I think, uh, worked against us and did help elect Nixon. Uh, So the insurgency of Julian Bond for vice president, he did not get the nomination. Obviously, Edmund Muskie did, hewing to the center as the Democratic establishment so clearly wants to do. The insurgency of Julian Bond was not successful, but again, it was part of something we feel quite directly uh, today. The train keeps on rolling. This is from 1968. The Yardbirds. Enjoy. <laughs> 
1968. We won the culture war. I happen to believe that in change, culture precedes politics. The blending of uh, rock and roll, blues, white and black, it happened. The hippies helped make it happen in 1968. It was all just starting then. The environmental movement was just embryonic at the time. And uh, politically, it was, well, maybe a lot where we are today. There were progressive insurgencies in 1968 that made a lot of noise and didn't quite win. There was the progressive insurgency to end the war, to focus more on systematic, systematic racism in the United States. There was a lot of insurgent movement and you know, people in America get impatient, but it does take time. History never moves quickly. You try, you fail, you try, you fail, and then you win. Uh, yeah, it does happen. There were progressive insurgencies 50 years ago, and there certainly are today in 2018. Today, progressive insurgencies are winning the start of the anti-democratic process where we find ourselves today might have been delayed had Humphrey won, might have been. And history is full of might have beens, what ifs. That's okay. Because uh, imperfect as he was, establishment as he was, Hubert Humphrey 
and his fellow Senator Hawkins, Augustus Hawkins, put in legislation that would have required the government to provide a job at prevailing wages for every American who wanted one if the unemployment rate rose above 3%. Not a bad idea. Definitely in the FDR tradition. He also wrote a bill with Senator Jacob Javits of New York, a Republican, to set up a national system of industrial planning. Socialism! Oh, my goodness. Humphrey uh, was not perfect, but I I think he would have been better. Uh, This voting age was 21 back then. I could not vote for Humphrey, but I would have. And I hope you would have, too. Maybe some of you did. In 2016, some left-leaning purists who didn't learn the lesson that could have been learned then chose not to vote for our highly imperfect Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton. That lesson of 68 was not learned. Again, making the good the enemy of the perfect is not a good idea. So much we could have learned but haven't learned. I mean, Vietnam itself. The lessons are obvious. You don't go into a sovereign nation's take control of it without the consent of the people. And then, no matter how many people we sent into Vietnam, we couldn't possibly win. Yeah, we could have killed everybody in Vietnam with a few nukes, as some people wanted to do. But if there were any Vietnamese still alive, they would have fought for their nation, as we would have too. And it's amazing to me how here we are in 2018 in Afghanistan, Oh, man, I just it's amazing to me that uh, we haven't learned that lesson. We're not going to win in Afghanistan. What the heck would winning look like? What are we there for? Well, that's one of the things about the people who write history. They want us to believe myth. And it's more important what gets erased from history than what's actually in the history books. We need to do something about that. 1968, of course, came to a close, but 1968 did not end. In 1968, there was the trial of the Chicago 8 in 1969. Charged with conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot, thought police, whatever, were Abby Hoffman, his fellow yippie Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, John Freund, Lee Weiner, and Black Panther Bobby Seale. As noted by that former radical, now educator, Bill Ayers, the activists who were put on trial and their supporters did a brilliant thing, which was the strategy of the government, that the strategy of the government was to crush the anti-war movement by organizing the conspiracy trials all over the country. They did organize one in Chicago, one in Seattle, and then they stopped. And the reason they stopped (laughs) is that the activists were able to flip the script and put the government on trial. So the Chicago 8 trial was theater at the highest level, where Bobby Seale, the Black Panther, and the only black defendant in the case was gagged and strapped to his chair. Uh, And... uh, as the visual of Bobby Seale was being carried in and out of the court on a chair strapped in, it was an extraordinary metaphor for a whole country 
the organizers were able to say, the war is wrong, and they were acquitted because the jury convinced that what the government had done was appalling, that the anti-war uh, activists were right. They were convinced of that. Bert Cohen here. We are doing a slightly different uh, Keeping Democracy Alive today, talking about uh, Chicago 1968, uh, what happened then, what the things we could have learned are, and uh, why we didn't, I don't know, we just refused to learn from history. Graham Nash singing about Chicago and the trial. Chicago just to sing In a land that's known as freedom How can such a thing be fair? Won't you please come to Chicago For the help that we can bring We can change the world We are He's still doing it. A lot of us are still doing it. Of course, many of the Chicago 8 are no longer vertical on this planet. <laughs> but uh, what a trial that was. And I've showed that to classes in the past. Uh, the actual uh, acting out of the trial, the actual words from the transcript of the trial. Young people today 
need to see that. They wouldn't believe it. The uh, lack of democracy, well, I suppose they'd believe it because here we have a public hearing uh, for a new Supreme Court nominee, and the public is kept out of a public hearing. You know, maybe the other side learned more than we did, actually, from 1968. Keep the cameras away from the blood. They didn't know that back then. And make us, uh, you know, help the Antifa, the violent, crazy ones, and uh, makes you look better. But back then, in this trial of the Chicago 8, we won. We convinced them. And it can be done. Sometimes breaking the law, pushing the limits, sometimes it needs to be done. As Abby Hoffman was saying in that earlier quote, you know, we could just be quiet and be a fine, acceptable demonstration, but... That's not what gets the news. It's important for the world to see that, you know, the whole world watches that when when injustice happens. It's important to see that. So there's different parts. Protest and politics, both necessary. Neither is sufficient. That happened in Chicago, 1968. There was politics. There was protest. Messy, messy combination. And it didn't. uh, It made some changes. But it was a good start, and it's a point in history that we can look at and learn from. What can we learn from the fracas that was the Democratic Convention of the late summer 50 years ago? Many things, of course. The history of that period is uh, uh, just stay tuned for just a sec. I got to switch something here and get the next song up. Uh, So what can we learn? Uh, The history of the period is still being written. Of course. It was a fascinating period. Hey, there are so many books about the American Civil War, so many books about the uh, First World War, the Second, I mean, Vietnam, it goes on and on and on. History is still being written. Yes, it was 50 years ago, but we're still processing it in our culture, in our politics. It was, 1968, the start of today's successful insurgencies within the Democratic Party. They started it, and today that sentiment is vigorously alive. Fifty years ago this summer, the anti-war, anti-racist wing threw itself up against the establishment wing. The establishment won, but they lost. Many broke the rules. They pushed the limits. It had to happen. In 2016, with the insurgent Bernie Sanders movement, again, the establishment wing won, And once again, it lost. Let's make history. Be sure to vote on November 6th. Sometimes you need protests to go along with the politics. In the streets. But do make sure to vote, please.
the Rolling Stones from their 1969 Altamont Festival. Bert Cohen here on a slightly different Keeping Democracy Live. We're reflecting 50 years back, the summer of 1968, the political aspects of it, the Democratic National Convention. And who learned more, our side or their side? Look, we are divided. The, uh, the talk at the time was how divided America was. And it's true. It was divided 50 years ago, very much between left and right. And here we are today. There are some, a lot of similarities, a lot of things we can learn but haven't learned. Oftentimes it's the other side, the, uh, well, shall we say neo-fascist side, that learns better than we do. Uh, I actually remember in 1971, the May Day demonstration, when the police knew the demonstrators' plans a lot better than we did because they knew how to do it. And today, they want us to feel powerless. People remember back when there were demonstrations, street demonstrations, hundreds of thousands, sometimes a million people would show up in the streets, and it felt at the time like it didn't make a difference because the war just kept going on and on and on no matter what we did. But there was one demonstration in Washington where there were buses end-to-end around the White House so that nobody could get through. Inside the buses, we learned later, were troops with machine guns ready. They were scared. We are not powerless. They have been very effective. They, the right wing, the militaristic, racist wing, side of America, and it's come out a lot, wants us to believe we are powerless, that the demonstrations didn't mean anything. People think, oh my, we went out in the streets, it didn't do anything. We tried and tried and tried. We, the people, don't have any power. Well, that's exactly what they want us to think. We can't let them get away with it, because we actually do have power. It did make a difference back then. As noisy as it was, as messy as it was, You know, the uh, protests that are quiet, that don't disrupt, they go away. They don't have significance. And it's been amazing to me how the, uh, I mean, you talk about learning from 1968, uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, that the other side has made such a big deal out of that, completely nonviolent. But there's real power there. And now Nike has picked up in it because they know it'll make them money. Because people respect that. We do have power. Don't forget that. We have power on the streets to protest. uh, And it does make a difference. Certainly, uh, everybody remembers at the uh, inauguration of the Orange One, uh, huge, huge protests. And it did make a difference. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said to uh, uh, the leader of the uh, Pullman strike uh, that... uh, who wanted to end segregation. He wanted fairness for black people. They were virtually all black at the time, of course, the Pullman porters. And FDR told him, I agree with you. I want to end this segregation. I'm paraphrasing here. Now go out and make me do it. What that means is make the politics, I mean, politicians put their finger to the wind. Let's face it. We, they need to see that there are people out in the streets that they can listen to us and they will be safe because they care about re-election. Let's face it, they do. When they see a lot of us out in the streets, it does make a difference. It helps us get things done. 
uh, and we are anything but powerless. They've been very effective at convincing us, American citizens, we are powerless. We are not powerless. Yes, there's big money. Yes, it's an uphill fight oftentimes, but we are anything but powerless. And talk about police. They have learned from 1968, too. Listening in on people, we obviously had no electronic communications whatsoever back then. They are using the Internet to snoop on us, to track us. We can't let them get away with it. We like our privacy. And I think that's a neither a liberal nor conservative position. I guess it's more conservative, really, to prevent uh, police snooping on everything we do. Uh, we want some uh, Internet rules that are fair to everybody and protect our rights. It can be a tremendous organizing tool. It's amazing, as I look back 50 years, how well we got organized without the Internet. Today, it's a terrific new tool. It's the power of the people. What a concept. Democracy. Hey, we're trying to keep democracy alive. And uh, it's important that we realize uh, the power that we do have. And once again, going back to that uh, brilliant uh, icon from 1968, who remains an icon today in 2018, Aretha Franklin. Think, people, think. Thanks so much for listening. Stay active. Learn the lessons from 1968. We can do it. We are not powerless. We can make change. It doesn't come easily. It takes many, many decades. Uh, I'll tell you, the vision that I had of the 21st century back in 68, 69 was not exactly how it turned out. 
but we are still pushing for it. We can make it happen. We can't give up uh, our freedoms. Our American traditions are too important to give up. Get involved. Politics and protest, 68-2018. Bring them together. Make change. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Keeping Democracy Alive.